Welcome to the Control the Room podcast, a series devoted to the exploration of meeting culture and uncovering cures to the common meeting. Some meetings have tight control and others are loose. To control the room means achieving outcomes while striking a balance between imposing and removing structure, asserting and distributing power, leaning in and leaning out, all in the service of having a truly magical meeting. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to join us live for a session sometime, you can join our weekly Control the Room Facilitation Lab. It's a free event to meet fellow facilitators and explore new techniques so you can apply the things you learn in the podcast in real time with other facilitators. Sign up today at voltagecontrol.com facilitation lab. If you'd like to learn more about my book, Magical Meetings, you can download the Magical Meetings Quick Start Guide, a free PDF reference with some of the most important pieces of advice from the book. Download a copy today at magicalmeetings.com. Today, I'm with Eric Skogsberg, Sarah Gretter, and Jeff Grable, the authors of Design for Change and Higher Education, a playbook that grounds theory and practice that is aimed at faculty, staff, and students engaged in the important work of imagining new forms of education. Welcome to the show, y'all. Oh, thank, thank you. you. Wow, it's such a pleasure for me to have three brilliant people. You know, usually I only have one person, and you know, not all of them are as up to the standards of you know academia. So, like, really excited to have a have a lively bunch here. Well, probably they're not as good looking as we are either. Well, no one can tell. So. <laughs> <laughs> That will remain a secret. That's right. That's why I said it. <laughs> so good. Yes, the mystery has uh, been set here. So I want to get started hearing a little bit about how you all got started in this work of change in higher ed. Sarah, you want to go first? Of course, Jeff. Um, so I met uh, Eric in grad school at Michigan State University, and him and I were already uh, working around higher education spaces and uh, trying to shake things up already back in grad school. I met Jeff as a uh, potential uh, employer, actually, after my PhD uh, through Eric and uh Jeff at the time was directing the Hub for Innovation and Learning and Technology at Michigan State University uh, that Eric had also joined. And so I joined the team a few years in, and we realized that it was time to uh, bring our minds together to document all the work that we had been doing at the Hub in those past years. Thinking back, you know, some of the conversations that led to all this collaboration began pretty early on, Jeff, as, as um, I was going through my program and just kind of talking about um, different things that were working or not working in the experience and sort of the larger work of, of doing higher education. And so a lot of those conversations began even before the, the hub. And then when there was this opportunity to create this space, we reconnected and, and um started getting those pieces launched as, as Sarah and I were talking to at about the same time, it was kind of this convergence of, you know, at each, at each point we'd had multiple conversations about wanting to, to uh, make some shifts to, to redesign what, what could be. And uh, we were in all interested at the right time, I guess. Yeah. I think that, I think that I got lucky. I'm the old man. Uh, I, I got lucky that I met, two smarter, younger people at, at the right time. In some respects, I've been 
working on educational change initiatives at, at smaller scales almost my entire academic career. And I think the, the pivot moment for me with regard to scale was uh, we in, my research group invented an educational technology um, by mistake, and we spun it out into an educational technology company. And the, the point of that was we found ourselves in the teacher change business at scale. I'd done, I'd done teacher professional development work in terms of pedagogical innovation and transformation throughout my career. But all of a sudden, we were working with you know, hundreds of teachers and tens of thousands of students and understanding that being in the educational technology business meant that we were in the teacher change business, which is a miserable business. It's really, it's really difficult work um, and has to be done thoughtfully and carefully. And, and then that became, part of that was the reason why the provost asked me to, to, to take on an, an explicit innovation portfolio at Michigan State. And the hub was an answer to a question, which was, what sort of capacity do we think we need to build to support uh, colleagues, students, and, and faculty alike imagining a different kind of university at scale? And uh, so the hub was not it was not a, not a creature of a, of a strategic plan or some sort of waterfall. It was an emergent iterative um, design that uh, benefited tremendously from having people like Eric and Sarah in leadership positions. It's really fascinating, this idea of being in the work of teacher change. And um, you talked about that being really difficult. And I find that all change is fairly difficult, especially if you are um, really embracing the emergent phenomenon and trying to find the true path. So I'm curious if you found that teacher change to be especially hard and why that stands out relative to other change efforts. That's an interesting question. I, I don't, I'll go first. I don't know whether teacher change issues are any diff more difficult than others. It's just where I have experience. I think any time you have, you're working on, I mean, you know this, people sort of like the idea of change. They just don't want to. And, and anytime you're working with really talented um, experts, uh, human beings uh, accustomed to tremendous autonomy, that's a, that's a really difficult room. And so the challenge for, in the educational technology version of me, the challenge was people realized that to use this technology well, they had to teach differently. And that forces all sorts of questions, not about practice necessarily, but, but, but about identity. I was like, oh, wait a minute. I, I thought I was pretty good at what I did. And now maybe I'm entertaining the possibility that I could be better. And... Working through those identity issues, I think, are really difficult. And I think we found that to be true at Michigan State at scale. And it's certainly true here at Leeds, where we're, we're doing educational transformation at even bigger scale than, than what we tried at Michigan State. I'd say the difficulty is part of entering a very complex, human-centered ecosystem in education, right? It involves not only just this, the learners, but the teachers, the parents, the families, and then adding to that uh, rigid systems and structures that have been in place for decades, if not centuries, uh, that ne doesn't necessarily align with the need of those human beings or the changes that those human beings need to make in order to adapt to their current realities. And, and people come in, you know, there's so much that folks want from education, from an education, you know, all those constituencies and stakeholders of which, you know, the teacher and the student, that, that's one part of the relationship. But, um, you know, society wants things from, from an education, businesses want things from an education. And so you're, 
you're working with all these multiple constituencies that are either present or in the background, but influential. And those really do um, have an influence on, on that identity piece and what people believe they need to do or should be doing um, in that space. Especially because it's not a neutral playground at mm-hmm. all, right? It's not yep. a uh, it's not a a system or a space that you design at your will. There are political challenges, there are societal challenges, like you said, Eric, economic set challenges that all influence what education or teaching and learning teaching and learning look like uh, in the very time and space that you're working in changing it. Mm-hmm. You know, the identity piece comes up a ton in change efforts at large, regardless of industry, place you know, regardless of the desired change. And, you know, Jeff, you mentioned this idea of them thinking they need to be better. And I've often seen even just struggling with their identity changing in some way because they've spent years and years identifying as A, and now after this change, they might have to be a B or whatever. You know, there's some transition they're going to have to go through. And that can be scary, especially if they don't understand what that means or if it even means that there's a place for them there in the future. No, I think that's exactly right. Uh, scary is the right word because, so to focus on where we are at the University of Leeds, you know, every single program of study, every everybody responsible for every single program of study has been invited uh, to think about what what the future version of that program of study might be, and and the first reaction which we experience at Michigan State in various ways is, well, what's wrong with what we're doing? What, what problem do we need to fix as, a, as distinct from what opportunity might we try to realize? And there's, there's all sorts of identity issues in, in the problem stance. I mean, we, we had a spectacular failure at Michigan State trying to work with a department to do a course transformation where they were clearly disadvantaging certain populations of students. And instead of entertaining the conversation, um, because it, it put them, ident- identity-wise, they had to consider the fact that they were doing harm in a domain where they thought that they were doing good in the world. Um, instead of in, in engaging the conversation in a particular way, they spent a year proving us wrong um, by running all sorts of different data and analytics to show that in fact, that was just a normal distribution of outcomes in that, in that particular learning experience. So there's, there's, there's fear and threats, uh, all around, um, the kind of design work and change work that we've been involved in, including surprisingly to me, but I should get over my surprise, the possibilities of a, of a, really remarkably imaginative future that they can own um, because it's an unknown, right? And so Mm -hmm. the thing that I know is always a little bit safer than the thing that I I can't predict. Mm -hmm. But also interesting there, I think it came up at multiple points for us was how uncomfortable, you know, faculty, teachers, educators were in engaging in a learning experience themselves, right? You know, this identity shift or getting getting an institution of higher ed to think of itself as a learning institution and that that's just a key part of the process that um, to see um, folks be be that uncomfortable at points with, uh, you know, it's okay for students maybe to be going through this learning process, but uh, to take that up as educators, right, which is so key uh, in that relationship there and in, in any sort of change, which, um, yeah, 
I think as, as when your identity, though, has been rewarded in certain ways by a system uh, that incentivizes you to, you know, produce publications or yeah. teach in a certain way, right? And your uh, tenure promotion reappointment is based on that identity fitting that mold, uh, asking them to embrace that messy and nonlinear process is extremely difficult and asks for so much vulnerability that in return is not necessarily rewarded. So I think we see and we've seen in, in the past faculty or even whole departments that were ready to embrace that uh, and others that were refraining from it entirely. I've had faculty members say, I will not participate in this project because uh, this will go against what I am trying to achieve with my 10-year process. Uh, therefore, I refuse to be part of this. So there's been a mix of uh, different approaches to that. But I think as, as the second you touch on somebody's identity within that system and how it's been rewarded or will be rewarded, it becomes extremely difficult for us to to help them accomplish that change or guide them towards that change. Sarah, how have you found incentives to play a role in the work that you're doing? You talk about the incentives, you know, being a problem. Have you used them as a tool to think about uh, incentivizing the behaviors you do want or even just being maybe uh, pointing a light onto how the incentives aren't serving us? You know, we did in some cases and, and Jeff has worked, you know, at the leadership level to change some of those systems uh, in some ways. At the, the smaller scale, if you will, for specific projects, we did manage to, you know, have specific faculty get a, a letter of recommendation from our unit to include in their uh, review packets, for instance. It wasn't always necessarily enough to help change that perception overall, but I think in some cases it did. There are other projects that we led at the hub, for instance, um, like rethinking the evaluation process that all faculty, teaching faculty have to go through as part of that tenure review promotion and reappointment that, for instance, hadn't been changed in 16 years uh, in terms of the technology that we use to administer teaching course evaluations. Uh, but also the policy itself on campus had not been changed since 1979. And so we use that as an incentive to participate in a larger scale project of change for the campus uh, in its entirety. Uh, and that was an incentive enough for some faculty and groups on campus to help with that change. So Eric, I want to bring it back to the point you made around learners and, you know, shifting that mindset that it's, we're not only talking about these undergrad or graduate students that are the learners, but if, you know, if faculty, if professors can be learners as well. And, you know, I, that mindset shift can be powerful, but it also struck me that, wow, if that percolates down to the actual students, mm -hmm. that could have a very impactful outcome for them, just this awareness that, oh, even in my professional life, I can continue doing this. It, it's not a matter of getting to this end goal and I'm there and I'm done. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it, it models this. What, what should be this ongoing process of becoming and, and, and normalizes change, right? Because at its core, designing learning is designing change, right? And if, if we're able to, to model that across a, a student's experience, across a faculty member's experience, across a staff member's experience, that then um, says that it's okay to, to engage in this ongoing growth process, right? Which is, is good 
inside and outside of uh, formal educational spaces. I mean, that's a, an exciting way to, or for me, a much more exciting way to approach how we live, right? And, and to engage in, the, in, in that ongoing growth process. So. so speaking of growth, I'm curious how often it came up in your lab and your center, how many different lenses we might have towards growth. Because I imagine, you know, students come in, you know, they want to learn things that, you know, there's information that needs to be inserted into brains, but there's also lots of other kinds of growth that's happening throughout those years as humans, right? And learning how to become adults in some ways, right? And I'm just curious how much that showed up in your exploration of the change and, and how to be there for students in those times. Well, one of the principles that we, one of the arguments we make in the book is that universities are designed experiences. And one of the reasons we went to the experience as the focus of our design work was that it was maximally inclusive of the co and extracurricular uh, experiences that students have at university. I mean, one of the one of our catchphrases was students spend 14% of their time in the classroom and the rest of their time at university. And those experiences are as formative and fundamental to their learning as any. And what they're doing in those experiences and how they're learning are not exclusively or primarily cognitive. And so you're absolutely right. It, it In the work that we did in that, particularly in some of the one of the projects that Sarah led to try to wrap our heads around what the what the first what the transitions in the first year of a student are at that university, we we really had to m- move beyond a, a more cognitive and more formal education notion of learning, and into um, different ways to understand change um, and experience and how experience drives change and uh, the affective and, and all of the components of what it means to be a human being. I don't know if you want to pick that up, Sarah, but it really yes. did stretch faculty in particular to think a little bit differently about where change happens in a university experience. Yes, it's it's about stretching the conception we have of universities or learning in general as purely academic and measured by grades versus considering the social, emotional, and cognitive aspects of what it means to be in school or in an educational uh, experience. Uh, it's, it's a little bit of a top to bottom and bottom up kind of tr- process, right? To, to get uh, universities to understand what students need and for students to enter this university that has specific strategic plans and objectives and uh, its own set of budgetary, political and systemic issues to work with. So that point of contact is really where the experience for the students lives that the university gets to create and the learners get to experience. And there are moments where, you know, we realize that the university is thinking of learning and those experiences in certain ways and students are saying, well, I don't care. I just don't have AC in my dorm and that is my main priority right now. And so understanding where those things align or don't align in a lot of cases is where most of the design work that we've conducted could really happen and really um, entertain positive conversations amongst uh, all of the partners that were involved in a project. And what's ultimately at stake there is is, um, the extent to which we're actually able to prepare students for life outside of the university space, you know, when, when there was such a narrow focus on just the academics or just the, the graded side of things, um, that's not serving creating, um, 
thoughtful, impactful, insightful human beings outside of outside of the university, um, seeing the full picture and helping people see the full picture does or or certainly leans better in that direction. Mm-hmm. So we've been using the word design a lot and it shows up in the title of the book. And this is something that we chatted about in the pre-show chat around why design. And before you all jump into explaining that, I want also want to just encourage you to maybe give the listener a little bit of a lens into what's the difference between like, you know, the color of the sofa or, you know, how we lay out a brochure type of little D design, what I call little D design versus big D design. So maybe why design um, when we're thinking about the change and like, what is this bigger concept of design versus just like, what color should this thing be? Yeah, I really want to hear Eric and Sarah take this one up because I think we're going to have <laughs> sort of sort of different takes on different. this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think for the title of the book, we really uh, played with the the word design as both a noun and a verb, uh, which gives it uh, kind of an encompassing look at how I think the three of us see that, right? So there's design in the sense of uh, the plan, what you see in front of you, and that's the design of an experience or of a learning experience in this particular context. And there's design as a verb that really holds that accountability and the intentionality behind that plan. And I think that's, that is really central to all of the work that we've done together uh, at the hub and in our current, uh, you know, positions uh, to bring design together in a way to both intentionally create something new or recreate something that needed changed, uh, but also lay out that plan in front of stakeholders in order to get that buy-in and participate in that change. Yeah. I mean, Sarah, when you, when you say create, there, I just think how much for me design is about, you know, imagining a, a, a different way forward or a, a better way to go about things, and then then enacting and creating the conditions through which we we get there, right? Whether that's um, you know a learning experience or experiences in in industry spaces, it's all about kind of creating more optimal futures, right? And in this case, we were we were focusing in on putting the right conditions together for creating a much better learning and growth experience for students, both, both inside and outside of classroom spaces. So there's a lot of, I don't know, imagining and, and creating the, the, the future when it, when it comes down to it. And, and for all of us, we had, you know, we come from, it's interesting, we share some disciplinary lineages here that at their core, whether it's rhetoric or ed psych or teacher education, you know, so much of that at its core is, is, is about imagining and designing something different or better. I'm, I'm not so sure yes. about the ed psych stuff. I mean, that's, that's a bit <laughs> oh, of a stretch. Jeff. I'll let Sarah. Uh... Jeffrey. Okay, let's, let's hear it from you, Jeffrey. So, uh, no, it's, uh... it's, it's ex- when when she's calling me Jeffrey, I'm in trouble. So that's <laughs> right. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's interesting. I mean, when when we started to imagine this thing that became the hub, it didn't start with oh, we need to build a design team. It it started with the, the recognition of something that I think is true in higher education and likely true in every organization, and that is when you put the same people in the same rooms using the same processes, you get the same outcomes. And so we needed to change, um, ideally, all three of those variables. 
And the way we thought we needed to do it after a lot of conversation was to find ways that are more inclusive and participatory um, and to work in different ways. And so we, we settled on design practices and then sort of fiddled our way through that because we wanted to create opportunities to for people to think differently to arrive at different outcomes so that opening bit was really sort of terribly important in a way which is participatory and inclusive and it's the participatory and inclusive part which i think is fundamentally why we move towards design and why why design is uh, what we think of as the most optimal way to facilitate change in higher education. These are cultures and institutions that are wildly disaggregated, distributed, populated by people who think they're free agents. And so getting that kind of a, of a community to get together requires, uh, and to, to produce something productive and, and different requires an, an emphasis on new processes that are participatory and inclusive, and also a commitment to making things. So I think we came to that later, um, and it was it, I, it's probably the hardest part. The inquiry in the opening up and the imaginative part of our design work was relatively easy. Educators are good at that. It's the, it's the analytical making and iterating part, which took a lot of courage, um, particularly to do it at pace, to do it quickly and not slowly. So I think, I think that's... That's for the work we did at Michigan State. I think that that's fundamentally the answer to to why design. It's a complicated place, but uh, there's enough disciplinary expertise in every higher education institution to do it. I mean, one of the interesting things about higher education is all of the things we need to do design work in those institutions already lives there. What's necessary is some imagination, some leadership to pull that capacity together in a new way. I think I think the the design aspect of how we chose to approach the work, like you said, Jeff, brings together what universities are really good at, right? Research, uh, documentation, and and really a deep understanding of a of a topic or a context. But design brings in that sense of urgency uh, that I was talking to Eric about earlier. And brings in a language that facilitates that messiness and that nonlinearity that academics are used to at pace. And that's really key, right? I always joke that university years are like dog years. You have to multiply by seven. Uh, <laughs> and, and, for, and for any conversation to actually happen at pace and then to, you know, link that change or that conversation to a rigid system that takes a long time to accomplish or execute things is really where design helped push, you know, sometimes just baby steps in the right direction, but help push some of that system altogether. I want to, I want to pick up something really quickly that was in your, your question about why design and, and it's what we design. So we don't design brochure layouts. Uh, one, I think the most important chapter in the book is the, is the, com the, the chapter on conversations. So we think that what we designed at, at the hub and, and what we, what I'm, what my team here at, at the University of Leeds is learning how to design is a conversation. And so uh, patterns for how uh, colleagues and students talk with each other 
And so there's, there's all sorts of issues of language, there's ri- issues of rhythm, there's issues of, of what are the boundaries of the conversation, what are the facilitation techniques that are required to open that conversation and then bring it to certain kinds of closes. So we designed conversations. What our colleagues designed were things like syllabi and modules and curricula and programs. And so our job was to, to design the conversation that was sufficient to get them where they needed to be to make the things that they needed to make as outcomes of that design work. Yeah, it strikes me too is the, the maturity of the program as well as the people uh, that are in the program, how far along have they come with you, will dictate at what point in the conversation you're in because you mentioned this commitment to making things. And so if they're struggling with that, you have to design a conversation that makes them more comfortable with that. Yes, and that goes back to that idea of identity and change, right? Yeah, the the best to give you a good example of that the best work I'm going to say the best work that Sarah did, but it's probably not the best work that Sarah did. But some really interesting work that Sarah did was, uh, and it's in the book. It's one of my favorite examples is the work that she did with our French department that was stuck. They were just stuck, and Sarah put together without speaking French, which which she of course can <laughs> do. Um, which she put, I had to do that. You know I had to do that. Of she, course. She, yeah. she designed a simple little elegant conversation for them that got them unstuck. And once they were unstuck, they ran with it. They didn't need Sarah anymore. They liked having her around because she's fun to be around, but they didn't really need her anymore. And so that, it was a really elegant bit of conversation design. And, and I thought it was really remarkable for its simplicity. Designing conversations takes into account power and authority, who is quote-unquote at the table to make those decisions. And, and that's definitely a lot of the work that Eric and I would spend hours at the Hub designing facilitations or sessions or conversations where we would look at every single outcome. We would look at uh, you know the arc of that conversation and where we wanted to end that meeting or that facilitation and really using, I think in, in both our cases, Eric, uh, our teacher mindset to really guide the conversation, let it flow, but at the same time, keep track of the outcome in mind. And I think we learned a lot from those facilitations and how to design those conversations with uh, co-participatory or or participatory um, processes in mind at the same time. Which, you know, hopefully at their best, then people were never, you know, the same because of it. You know, we like talked in the hub quite a bit about this. Douglas, we talk a lot in our work about this, that so much of what we do is is designing a, a temporary world or a temporary organization for folks mm-hmm. that, because of what they experience there, they can never be the same because they've they've been able to glimpse something different. You know, whether it's it's the the French faculty, um, you know, some of our of our other projects there that they've been able to see that, that that they're capable of 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 a different way of working together, and and because of that, they want to they want more, right? And and hopefully that continues to to, to or they get they get terrified by this temporary world that allows them to yeah. imagine being differently, <laughs> <That's> <laughs> being right. different, that, right? That too. Yeah, that too. Yeah. We've had we've had those two, and I think that goes back to that idea of the conversation itself is is only one piece of the puzzle, right? And within that system of change, without you know either Jeff's support as a leader at the university or their own unit's leadership to incentivize or support the change, those conversations would just end in the space that we would have them and not continue. So it really. 
the conversations were just enablers of that change, uh, even though they were a key pivotal point of them, they were just still one small piece of the puzzle. You know, one critical piece that people miss is sustaining change. You know, you talk about these temporary worlds, and so they have this moment, they have this conversation, but then they go back to, you know, working on, you know, the paper and getting, uh, I got to get public, you know, fixated on the, the things they're already doing. And uh, what is this repeated process they can go through to make sure they're coming back to those thoughts, to those epiphanies they were having? And, and so it gets totally integrated. There's so much, yes. you know, attention has to be paid to those thresholds, right? And we saw we, we saw a lot of dissonance, obviously, both within these conversations and as people, you know, went back into their departments and came back as incentives weren't weren't lined up and you know, more and more work being done on, on our end in terms of orchestrating those thresholds better, mm-hmm. um, which is key yeah. in, in a lot of change efforts. I mean, Douglas, you, you yourself talk about it in, in your book, right, Beyond the Prototype, that, that magical energy that happens around those conversations. But then when you get back to the office the next Monday, that slump, right, that energy is completely down and we go back to the day-to-day business. Uh, and so, so sustaining that energy and that, that vision for that future uh, while still executing on it, I think has been one of the hardest parts that – the hub, especially being an internal group to the to campus, it's been one of the hardest parts for us to to navigate. I think uh, we 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 talked a lot about handholding, right? But there's this need for those groups who want really badly to change or want to ex- execute on change to do that on their own once they leave our facilitation or our designed uh, conversations around that change. It's about setting them up as designers themselves, right? And I think that that's a key. <laughs> embedded meta part of the process there where it's mm-hmm. you know we have to recede into the background and and set set um individuals up faculty students staff to then continue designing after they leave that focal experience which is really difficult work <laughs> you know that segues into something i was really curious to hear about from jeff around because you know sustaining and scaling are kind of cousins, if you will, right? Because if you've got a really large organization, you can't really sustain it if you don't scale it. And then you can't scale it if you don't sustain it. So they kind of work work very well together. And you mentioned just having a really large org that you're working with and it's disaggregated and there's free agents. And so I'm just kind of curious, given some of those challenges, what have you found to be good techniques to scale and grow? <laughs> hopefully somebody who listens to this gives us the answer to that question so i mean sarah and eric will appreciate the terrifying scale of the work it leads i mean we struggled to resource uh, a project portfolio at michigan state which is a tenth of the coming project portfolio um, at the at the university of leeds and so one of the really interesting problems that we're going to have to solve is that braiding together of sustainability and scale. In other words, we can't facilitate with the depth across at scale at Leeds. We can't do it. And so we're going to have to try to, we are trying to develop sort of lighter touches and more architecture to 
distribute the agency for the for the design work more broadly, which means that we're including we're including more people. So people with dean roles and sort of school level or department level education roles to be some of the sort of facilitators or keepers of the rhythm um, that needs to happen. And and the design expertise here is is low. I mean we have an excellent school of design, you know, one of the best one of the best in the world. But the learning design expertise, you know, there's relatively little of that. And so we're, we're trying to do something at scale with um, less expertise than we need and fewer people than we need. Um, the irony of that is we might just figure out sustainability. We, we struggled with it at Michigan State. We did it at Michigan State. And um, we did have some sustainable interventions that we're, that we're quite proud of uh, our colleagues for executing. But uh, the sustainability here will have to come from a different way of working. And my hope, we have to get beyond hope, but my hope right now <laughs> is because a, a, a broader group of faculty will have to, will, are interested in and will have to carry the work, they'll own it in a way that sometimes departments at Michigan State didn't own the work that we did. Right. So I think, I, I guess where I'm, where I'm rambling um, in my answer is towards the kind of double-edged sword that's emerging here at Leeds around scale and sustainability. That we have some we have some structural problems that will will make it di more difficult for us to to scale the work. But uh, where we're successful, I think it might be more sustainable. And I think those are elements that we touched on when we were all together, you know, writing the book and working at the hub, but there's other elements to design that are as um, central to the process that, that we don't, don't necessarily talk about, but I think we were starting to really understand. And it's a, a combination of building trust, right? Trust is essential to any change work and in design in particular, especially in institutions that have been, hurt uh, in the past, right? Or where leadership has not necessarily put their faculty or staff at the forefront of those changes. It's also a combination of uh, storytelling with that, right? Uh, Jeff and I talk about that quite a bit, especially in the work he does at Leeds. The story that you tell around the change is needs to happen proactively, not retroactively after the change has occurred, so that you build that trust around how people see themselves as part of that story, right? So that, that magical future that we're building together, uh, the earlier you bring in the storytelling aspect uh, into the mix, the, the, the more you build trust and the more you build relationships around a common goal. And then finally, that will speak to any academic uh, assessment, right? Then you need to add some measure of that change that helps people and those agents that are part of, uh, of conducting and executing the change to to quote-unquote prove, you can never prove, but you can show that there are markers of success that we are hitting along the way. And I think it's a combination of those uh, elements along with the design process altogether that really helps uh, individual faculty, but also larger groups and institutions to sustain that change in a way that really is participatory, but also able to to, to manage long-term, uh, you know, other impact or changes. We're not you know, Im immune to another pandemic or anything else that will hit us uh, along the way. Uh, so th those are really core elements to any functions of change in a, an institution. So I wanted to, in our closer here, shift gears a little bit and kind of 
maybe go up a few levels and talk about like why this is important to organizations. Like, why is this so imperative? And the thing that came to mind for me was jobs to be done. And, you know, often with the jobs to be done framework, you can find or analyze that there's competitors that might not seem like competitors, you know, a naive analysis might say that, oh, someone's thinking about going to MSU, then maybe Stanford is, is a competitor, right? But when we get into the world of change and the world of how everything's rapidly evolving, then, and we really take a look at like, what, what are the students really trying to accomplish through either this cognitive learning or, or this, this, these lived experiences? What are the alternatives? What are those competitors? And so anyway, that's a long lead up to why is this important and where might students go elsewhere? What are the things that universities need to be thinking about as far as What's the real competition and how do we design for this change? That's a great question. It's one of Jeff's favorite questions. Mm -hmm. It's one of my favorite questions. Uh, Sarah, Eric, you'll love this. I was in a meeting with a, with a school uh, department here at Leeds just prior to this. And, and one of the questions that they're asking themselves as part of their design work is, is why Leeds? which was the question that I tried to get Michigan State to take seriously as a, as a legitimate question. I, I think there's a few things. In U.S. higher education, large chunks of the country in the United States face some demographic challenges. So we have a university system that's bigger than our student population, uh, particularly if we think about them in sort of traditional age learners of 18 to 24. If we start thinking about lifelong learning, then, then that then that gets more interesting, but most universities are not architected or designed for lifelong learning. They're, they're, they're designed for faculty to do research, and they're designed to, to address the learning needs of, of students at a particular point in their lives. And so demography is, is, a, is a real challenge that universities will have to take seriously with regard to their ability to compete. I'm more comfortable that universities can compete with some of the other adjacent or possible competitors like Google and um, other kinds of technology providers. I th they'll provide learning in that lifelong uh, and do provide learning opportunities in that lifelong span. But universities are special institutions. There's a reason why they've been around for a really long time. They do change. It's not that they don't change. They do adapt and have been pretty agile if your time scale is long <laughs> with regard to adaptations. But the biggest challenge, and universities in the UK, Canada, Australia, US all have a version of this in common, and that is, particularly for research universities, the economic model is not sustainable. I think the big challenge that every university has that's easy for leadership at universities to kick to the next president or the next provost or the next vice chancellor is to figure out what a sustainable university looks like that can balance the educational mission and the research mission for research institutions in particular because the math doesn't work. And everybody knows that the math doesn't work and uh, it has societal implications in terms of the student loan debts that, that, are, that have been passed on to not every generation of students, but just the most recent generation of students. So I think there's some really hard problems in the fundamental business model and in the systems that are really out of universities' control to control, but will place a premium on responsiveness to them. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to to think of that that why question, why any institution, why a higher education, and you know, I think it's going to be interesting to see the institutions that are 
going to remain competitive, I think will be r- responsive to this question, to this ability to create that next group of change leaders, if you will. I just keep thinking about how so much of what we do or should be doing is really making it, designing conditions through which students are able to resiliently go through change and growth and then take that out into into the work that they that they do themselves and that we're supporting them in you know living fulfilling impactful lives right and so i think it's the institutions that are able to do that institutions businesses organizations are able to create that i mean you know so much has been going over the last couple of years where folks inside and outside of education in industry spaces are taking stock of what's going to be most meaningful to them right? Mm-hmm. Because so many things have been called into question over the last yes. uh, f- few years. And so I think it's the, the institutions that are going to be able to guide, to support students, faculty, staff in what it means to do that, that, that will remain competitive. We also, we also live in a, an experience economy, right? Mm-hmm. So people, whether they're students or uh, anyone, is, is expecting experiences, right? You want to walk into a university like you do at Disneyland or at Ikea and just be there and be guided through the process and enjoy yourself along the way. I think there's an urgency around that in the sense that not everything needs to be an experience, but in the sense that most people are looking for that experience and that forces universities or higher ed institutions to rethink what their value proposition is. Uh, the same way Jeff always asks, right? Why would I pay a lot of money to spend four years maybe in the Midwest or somewhere that I don't necessarily want to be and for universities to be able to justify the cost, the length of time and uh, all of the other accommodations that that involves, uh, that means that they need to play in that same economy and, and really uh, ramp up the, the value of that proposition altogether. And that there's, by, by doing that, I mean, the, the, there's a lot of fun that we can have in engaging in those ways and some really powerful answers in, through, and on the other side of approaching education through that lens. Yes. So as we near our end here, I want to make sure to leave you all with an opportunity to leave our listeners with a final thought. So maybe we'll just go around and, and hear some final thoughts from each of you. Just uh, what would you like them to, to keep in mind as they go about their days? We've learned a lot along the way. I would encourage anyone to have those conversations with us. Uh, we, we are happy to share any of our processes, thoughts, playbook that come along with the book itself and really uh, excited and thrilled to engage in those conversations with the listeners. So reach out to us. Yeah, I'll build on that. So we wrote a book, but we don't think we have uh, very many answers. And so we wrote the book as an invitation. It's an explicit invitation. And and I think we try to say that explicitly in the book. We're trying to open up a conversation, ironically, about about learning design and about design in higher education. And so uh, I, we think we're right. We think we're onto something, but we don't think we got it right. And uh, so it is a genuine invitation for people. We hope people engage with the book. We hope people engage with the ideas. We hope they disagree. We hope they, they revise. We hope they adapt. We hope that they add to it because we think this is an important conversation and uh, we feel as if we've just started it. Yeah, I'll, I'll echo there and extend a bit. I think 
I, I'm interested to see what uptake and, and engagement uh, in that conversation looks like inside and outside of higher ed, because I think there are some some interesting implications here for how any organization thinks about change, because as has continued to sort of be borne out in, in, in the ongoing work that I, we are, are doing, you know, so much of designing change is designing learning and vice versa, you know, so I, I think there's a lot of interesting, a lot of interesting stuff that we can learn from, from each other as uh, we're helping organizations navigate this space, um, whether it be inside an educational organization or in an industry space. So looking forward to seeing what, uh, what that conversation, uh, ongoing conversation looks like. That's a really interesting point, Eric. I mean, I think one of our curiosities, particularly working where you work right now, is whether anybody outside of education will find uh, the ideas in our approach <laughs> Worth worthwhile, or whether they look at it and say, oh, no, that's ridiculous, you got it all wrong. Um, <laughs> well, I think, you know, as we've talked back, back and forth before, I think, you know, while there are certainly idiosyncrasies to, to education and educational spaces, we're not terminally unique. And, and at the, the end of the day, we're, we're helping human beings navigate change. And there's a lot of similarities shared across organizations. So I think I think there's a lot that we can learn from from each other there, and that that ultimately that's going to get us to to the best uh, ends. So, well, it's been a pleasure chatting with you all. I'm sure we could go on for hours and hours, and uh, we have to come to an end. So, I want to just say thanks so much, Sarah, Eric, and Jeff, for joining me today, and uh, it was lovely hearing from all of you, and excited to have the book come out and. Uh, Wishing you the best uh, as you sell the book and have more conversations about it. Thank you for having us. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Control the Room. Don't forget to subscribe to receive updates when new episodes are released. And if you want to know more, head over to our blog where I post weekly articles and resources about radical inclusion, team health, and working better. VoltageControl.com.